Are you tired of watching your beloved characters being tortured by careless authors? Are you sick of feeling like they could have swapped out all of the painful action and the plot would remain untouched? Subscribe to Books That Burn, the fortnightly book review podcast focusing on fictional depictions of trauma. We assume that the characters' reactions are reasonable and focus on how badly or well they were served by their authors. Join us for our minor character spotlights, main character discussions, and favorite non-traumatic things in the dark books we love. Find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome. My name is Alice and you are listening to the Backtrack History Show podcast. Crafted by me, a self-confessed history geek who enjoys those stories from the past that might have been forgotten. The Backtracker History Show is first aired on Bradley Stoke FM in Bristol, England, before being plonked onto the podcast stage for all to enjoy. Now, if you enjoy the show, don't forget to share or leave feedback. It all helps. Keep in touch via either Twitter or Facebook by using at Backtracker UK with a capital V, capital T and a capital UK. got an interesting story for you today. It actually touches on Bristol's literary history as well and takes you halfway across the world. Today I'm going to be introducing you to the legendary Captain Woods Rogers. What's that I hear you say? You've never heard of him? Well you just sit back and relax and I'll tell you all about him. Woods Rogers was born in Poole around 1679, before moving to Bristol when he was a teenager. In November 1697, Woods Rogers was apprenticed to Bristol mariner John Yeamans to learn the profession of a sailor, and at 18, Rogers was somewhat old to be starting a seven-year apprenticeship. Wood stopped working with John Yeomans when he had to take over the family business after his father died at sea on a slave trade voyage, circa 1705. That was around the time that Woods Rogers married Sarah, the daughter of Rear Admiral Sir William Weston of Bristol, who was the Commander-in-Chief of the West Indies, as well as a neighbour and close family friend. This really helped him to get backing for his ventures in the future. By all accounts, Woods and Sarah's marriage was very happy and they went on to have a son and two daughters. Now, between the years of 1708 and 1711, Woods commanded a privateering expedition around the world on ships named Duke and Duchess, 
sponsored by fellow Bristol merchants, to the cost of £14,000, which was a considerable amount for the time. But the net profit was at least 170000 The period from February to December 1709 was an active lucrative phase in his privateering activities. 20 ships were captured and plundered, including the Assumption, the Santa Josepha, the Ascension, the Joseph and the Havre de Grace. Now in April 1709, the town of Guadalquil in Ecuador was raided. Wood's crew for this history-making adventure consisted of Gibraltarian tinkers, tailors, haymakers, peddlers and fiddlers and the ship's mascot was an old English bulldog. The navigator for this venture was the well-known Captain William Dampier. I'll talk about Dampier later on because he in himself is a very interesting character. Dampier stared them so far south of Cape Horn off the coast of Chile that many of the men on board froze to death or came down with scurvy, which is why they ended up landing on the island of Juan Fernandez. It was that first night that the crew of Duke saw the light from a fire on the shore. They initially assumed it was a French squadron anchored nearby and so Rogers ordered everyone to prepare for action, just in case. The next morning, everyone was in a heightened state of excitement, but they could not see any ships at all. So a yawl was sent out with two officers and six men, all armed, to investigate. On the shore, they found a man dressed in goatskins, waving his arms like a man possessed. This, it turned out, was Alexander Selkirk, who had been the master of the sink ports, but after an argument with the captain, had been stranded on the island four years and four months. Rogers wrote the book A Cruising Voyage Around the World, which would later become the inspiration for Daniel Defoe's Robinson Crusoe. An extract from that very book goes... Immediately, our pinnace returned from the shore and brought an abundance of crawfish with a man clothed in goatskins who looked wilder than the first owners of them. He had been on the island four years and four months, being left there by Captain Stradling. In the sink ports, his name was Alexander Selkirk. He had with him his clothes and bedding, with a firelock, some powder, bullets and tobacco, a hatchet, a knife, a kettle, a bible, some practical pieces, and his mathematical instruments and books. He diverted and provided for himself as well as he could, but for the first eight months had to bear up against melancholy and the terror of being left alone in such a desolate place. He built two huts with pimento trees, covered them with long grass, and lined them with the skins of the goats, which he killed with his own gun as he wanted, so long as the powder lasted, which was but a pound. And that being almost spent, he got fire by rubbing two sticks of pimento wood together upon his knee. that time in the show when we do the word of the week. This week's word is groggy, which means weak and unsteady on the feet or in action. Now, the story of groggy begins with Grogram, 
the name of a coarse, loosely woven fabric made entirely or partly from silk. The 18th century English Admiral Edward Vernon is reputed to have been in the habit of wearing a grogram cloak and to have earned for this peculiarity the nickname Old Grog among the sailors under his command. In Old Grog's day, sailors in the Royal Navy in the West Indies were customarily given a daily ration of rum. But in 1740, Vernon, alarmed by the damage to the physical and moral health of his men, ordered that the rum should be diluted with water. The decision wasn't very popular with the sailors, who supposedly dubbed the mixture grog after Vernon. The word grog eventually became a general term for any liquor, even undiluted, which led to people applying the term groggy to anyone, however sober, who moved with the unsteadiness characteristic of someone who has had too much grog. After spending so much time on his own without human contact, apparently, when Selkirk saw Woods, he was delirious with joy. Woods referred to Selkirk as the governor of the island. I was very impressed by the way that Selkirk managed to survive his time on the island. And when Woods asked, Alexander gave his story. Apparently, in September 1704, Alexander was serving under Captain Stradling in the Sink Ports. Stradling brought the ship to an island known to the Spanish as Mazatierra, located in the uninhabited Juan Fernandez archipelago, which is 420 miles off the coast of Chile, for a mid-expedition restocking of fresh water and supplies. Selkirk had grave concerns about the seaworthiness of their vessel and wanted to make the necessary repairs before going any further. He declared that he would rather stay on Juan Fernandez than continue in a dangerously leaky ship. Stradling took him up on the offer and landed Selkirk on the island with a musket, hatchet, knife, cooking pot, bible, bedding and some clothes. Naturally, Selkirk immediately regretted his rashness, but Stradling refused to let him back on board. As it turns out, St. Ports did indeed later founder of the coast of what is now Colombia. Stradling and some of his crew survived the loss of their ship, but were forced to surrender to the Spanish. The survivors were taken to Lima in Peru, where they endured a harsh imprisonment. But life on the island for Selkirk wasn't all sun, sea and sand. He was chased inland by saucy sea lions who entered the beach for the mating season. He ate spiny lobsters and had to get milk from feral goats. Rats would come along and attack him at night, but he was able to sleep soundly and in safety by domesticating and living near feral cats. During his time on the island, two vessels came to anchor Unfortunately for Selkirk, both were Spanish, and as a Scotsman and privateer, he would have faced a grim fate if captured and therefore did his best to hide himself. Once, he was spotted and chased by a group of Spanish sailors from one of the ships. His pursuers urinated beneath the tree in which he was hiding, but failed to notice him. The would-be captors then gave up 
and sailed away. And now it's the book of the week. And this time I've got a book that I finished reading last week and I'm on the second instalment. The first one is Murder in the Crypt by Irina Shapiro. Now, I'd never heard of this series before in my life, but I thought I'd take it up and, you know, just give it a try. And it's really good, considering that it's the author's first attempt at writing a mystery. Her previous books have been about time travel. This one is set just after the Civil War, where an American comes back to England to claim his inheritance of a title and a manor, and ends up working with the local constabulary after a body is found in the church crypt. Throw in a ward that the American has to look after, and stories of his time in the Civil War prisoner of war camp, and you have a rather engaging and interesting look at a different period of time. And now we continue our main story about Woods Rogers. After he found Alexander Selkirk, he continued on his way around the world back to England. He was seriously wounded twice before he managed to get back in 1711. In 1712, Woods Rogers was taken to court by Stephen Cree, an agent of the sailors, on a charge of fraud against the owners. They felt that Rogers had breached his trade monopoly in the area. This action bankrupted Rogers, so in 1717 he obtained a 22-year lease on the Bahamas and a commission as governor. So turning from privateer into pirate hunter, Woods Rogers was appointed the first royal governor of the Bahamas in 1717. The following year he arrived at its capital, Nassau, headquarters of more than 2,000 pirates. And Captain Woods Rogers' first job was to get rid of every single one of those 2,000 pirates that were used in the area as their unofficial headquarters. Originally, the English government had allowed privateers to harass the Spanish there, but then Nassau became overrun with so many pirates. They dominated the area with lawless riots and drunken revelry. They also chased out any law-abiding citizens. Edward Teach, better known as Blackbeard, set up home in Port Nassau, from where he made his plans for messing with the Royal Navy. To help reclaim the island and bring back some form of law and order, Rogers offered any pirate a royal pardon, absolving them of any crimes and giving them a clean slate to start over again but only if they gave names of other pirates. Although many took up this offer, there were about a dozen pirates who didn't think it was a good idea for them. They thought Rogers was no match for them, as many other local governors were not. Woods Rogers had a harsh welcome from one of the more notorious pirates, Charles Vane, who was aware of his coming. Charles burnt a recently captured ship in front of Roger's flagship and even fired a few shots while passing by. That 
was a clear message to Rogers that there were some pirates who would never accept a pardon and never surrender. So Rogers gathered many sailors and pirate hunters and formed a group to capture or kill these stubborn pirates. Rogers even recruited from among those pardoned because they knew the way of the pirates. One of his faithful servants was a famous ex-pirate, Benjamin Honeygold. The rogue stubborn pirates were then caught, sentenced, hanged or just killed in battle. Now after three years of combating Caribbean piracy, he returned to England in 1721, but went back as Captain General and Governor-in-Chief in 1729. The famous artist William Hogarth was commissioned to do a painting of Woods and his family to celebrate Woods' return to Nassau. If you want to see it, it's at the National Maritime Museum in Greenwich, London. It shows Woods being handed a map of Providence Island in the Bahamas by his son, William. His daughter Sarah is seen on the left-hand side with a book on her knee. Woods Rogers became the most hated and feared man amongst the pirates in the area. He died of mysterious causes in Fort Nassau in 1732, aged just 53. Now, Captain Woods Rogers had a slogan, Expulsis Piratus Restituta Commercia, or Piracy Expelled, Commerce Restored. And it remained the national motto of the Bahamas until independence in 1973. Woods Rogers was the only the third Englishman to circumnavigate the globe. And outside his previous house in Queen Square, Bristol, there is a blue plaque that simply says Woods Rogers, 1679 to 1732. Great seaman, circumnavigator, colonial governor. Lived in a house on this site. As with Black Bart from a previous show, Captain Woods Rogers has found his way into popular culture, most recently in 10 episodes of the partly fact-based Black Sails show. And, just like Black Bart, Woods is also a character in Assassin's Creed Black Flag. I am absolutely loving hearing from you guys and it's always a joy to read your messages but if you haven't got in touch with me or you would like to get in touch with me again you can and it's really easy you can find me on twitter or facebook at backtracker uk with a capital b a capital t and a capital uk or you can email me direct at info at backtracker.co.uk as some of you might be aware, the Backtrack History Show goes out on Bradley Stoke Radio in Bristol, England, before it's launched onto the podcast stage. And you guys out there could be part of helping this show grow. All you have to do is either leave a review wherever you get your podcasts, or just spread the word. It's very simple. Now, I've had several messages about a show from a couple of weeks ago, The Temple Meads Shooting and the actors that were used for the voices that read out the letters. They're all members of the Samwell Drama Group in Bristol. And I think you'll agree that they added another dimension to the stories. So I'm hoping to use them more often, just like I did today. Where I had Molly Jeffries playing 
the invincible Captain Woods Rogers. Let me tell you a bit more about what happened to Alexander Selkirk, the original Robinson Crusoe. By the time he got back home, he'd been away on sea for eight years. But after a few months in London, he began to seem more like his former self. In September 1713, Selkirk was charged with assaulting a shipwright in Bristol and may have been kept in confinement for two years. He returned to his hometown of Lower Largo in Scotland, where he met Sophia Bruce, a young dairymaid. They eloped to London early in 1717, but apparently didn't get round to getting married. He was soon off again to sea, having enlisted in the Royal Navy while on a visit to Plymouth in 1720. He married a widowed innkeeper named Francis Candice. He was serving as master's mate on board HMS Weymouth, engaged in an anti-piracy patrol off the west coast of Africa, when he died on the 13th of September, 1721, succumbing finally to the yellow fever that plagued the voyage. He was buried at sea. Now, it's widely believed that Daniel Defoe's book, Robinson Crusoe, which was first published on the 25th of April, 1719, was based on Alexander Selkirk's real-life adventures. Daniel Defoe was a secreted man, and he neither confirmed or denied that Selkirk was the model for the hero of his book, apparently written in six months or less. Robinson Crusoe became a huge publishing success. The book still has influences on our language today. During World War II, people who decided to stay and hide in the ruins of the German-occupied city of Warsaw for a period of three winter months, from October to January 1945, when they were rescued by the Red Army, were later called Robinson Crusoes of Warsaw. And in the book, Robinson Crusoe refers to his servant as My Man Friday. And that's where the term Man Friday or Girl Friday comes from. And if you've heard of the television show Survivor, well, that has its influences in Robinson Crusoe as well. for a few facts. On the 20th of June, this is a good one, in 1949, US tennis player Gertrude Gorgeous Gussie Moran shocked Wimbledon audiences by wearing lace-trimmed knickers under her short skirt for her appearance on centre court. Dun, dun, dun. Also, on the 20th of June, 1960, the BBC's Nan Winton became the first female television newsreader. On the 22nd of June, 1969, US singer and actress Judy Garland passed away. And on the 24th of June, in 1497, Italian-born English navigator and explorer John Cabot sighted Cape Breton Island 
and claim the mainland of North America for England. story, I said I talked to you more about William Dampier. Now, William Dampier was baptised on the 5th of September 1651, and he died in March 1715. He was an English explorer, ex-pirate and navigator, who became the first Englishman to explore parts of what is today Australia. He's also the first person to circumnavigate the world three times. He's been described as Australia's first natural historian, as well as one of the most important British explorers of the period between Sir Walter Raleigh and James Cook. William Dampier was born the son of a tenant farmer in 1651 in East Coker, Somerset, England. He sailed to Newfoundland and the East Indies while still a boy and took part in the Third Dutch War from 1672 1674. After a brief spell in Jamaica as under-manager of a plantation, he joined the Buccaneers of the Caribbean in Captain Morgan's heyday. In 1686, Captain Swan of the Signet, in which Dampier was sailing, decided to seek prizes in the Pacific before returning to England. Now, after spending six months in the Philippines, Swan's crew seized a ship and cruised in far eastern waters between China and Australia. Dampier accordingly spent the summer of 1688 at King Sound in Western Australia. After being marooned on one of the Nicobar Islands, he travelled by native canoe to Sumatra and served as a gunner at Benicolian before returning to England. Dampier recorded details of his amazing adventures along with navigational data in a diary on which he based his books A New Voyage Around the World and Voyages and Descriptions. Impressed by his work, the English Admiralty commissioned him with the rank of captain to command an expedition to explore the Australian coastline. He reached Shark Bay in Western Australia in August 1699 and using Tasman's charts he sailed up the coast for a month, seeking an estuary. After revictualling at Timor, he proceeded along the north coast of New Guinea and discovered New Britain, but abandoned plans to explore the east coast of Australia because his ship, the HMS Roebuck, was in poor condition. On the way home, the Roebuck was lost off Ascension Island and the crew were rescued by returning East Indian men. Dampier appeared to have little ability in managing the crews placed under him, and in 1702, a court-martial declared him unfit to command any of His Majesty's ships. This verdict might well have been noted by those who appointed him next year to lead a privateering expedition to the South Seas, since that enterprise ended in failure. Whatever his strengths or weaknesses as a sailor were, Dampier was very popular as an author. His works setting entire fashion in travel literature and influencing such men as Swift and Defoe. New Voyage Round the World ran in four editions within two years of its publication in London in 1697. 
Between 1708 and 1711, he again sailed around the world as pilot for our very own Captain Woods Rogers. Now, the exact date and circumstances of his death and his final resting place are sketchy at best. His will was proven on the 23rd of March, 1715, and it is generally assumed he died earlier that month, but this is not known with any certainty. One of the facts I mentioned earlier was about Judy Garland, who passed away on the 22nd of June, 1969. Now, Judy Garland was born Frances Ethel Gum, and she had a career spanning 45 years, becoming an international superstar as an actress in both musical and dramatic roles, as a recording artist and on the concert stage and was the first woman to win the Grammy Award for Album of the Year for her 1961 live recording, Judy at Carnegie Hall. Garland began performing in vaudeville as a child with her two older sisters. They called themselves the Gum Sisters, but were encouraged to change the name to something more appealing as Gum was met with laughter from the audience. So they changed it to the Garland Sisters. There's various stories about why they chose the name Garland, but the one I like is Garland's daughter, Lorna Luft, saying that her mother selected the name when George Jessel, someone who they were performing with, announced that the trio looked prettier than a garland of flowers. When Judy was a teenager, she signed on with Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer and appeared in two dozen films for MGM and was remembered for portraying Dorothy Gale in the 1939 film The Wizard of Oz. Sadly, her lifelong struggle with substance abuse ultimately led to her death in London from an accidental barbiturate overdose at the age of only 47. Now I'm going to give you a cooking tip. A lot of people cry when they cut onions. Now, I found that the trick is not to form an emotional bond. You may have heard the sad news that Dame Verilin has passed away on Thursday, at the age of 103. She was a symbol of resilience and hope, best known for performing for the troops during World War II in countries including India and Egypt. In 1941, during the darkest days of the Second World War, Dame Vera began her own radio programme, Sincerely Yours, sending messages to British troops serving abroad. She and her quartet performed songs most requested by the soldiers. Lynn also visited hospitals to interview new mothers and send personal messages to their husbands overseas. Dame Vera was widely known during the Second World War to perform to people sheltering in stations of London's underground. She became popular among soldiers and earned the nickname the Force's Sweetheart. And even this year she was still making history, becoming the oldest artist to get a top 40 album in the UK when her Greatest Hits album re-entered the charts at number 30. 
Dame Vera, who was born in London in 1917, was also remembered for singing The White Cliffs of Dover, They'll Always Be in England, and I'll Be Seeing You. You have been listening to me, Alice, on the Backtracker History Show. Now, this podcast has been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. If you liked it, please leave a rating and maybe a comment. If you didn't, well, let's just leave it at that, shall we? I would love to hear from you. You can get in touch with me via Twitter or Facebook using at Backtracker UK with a capital B, a capital T and a capital UK. Or, alternatively, you can email me at info at backtracker.co.uk By the way, the tune in the background? That's by The Model Folk. You can find out more about them at themodelfolk.com So thank you so much for listening, and until next time guys, take care, and look after each other.